So it was about March, I believe, 1807, uh, when an Irish minister named Thomas Campbell uh, washed up on the shore. Well, not washed up. He, he was on a boat. It was, it was a little more intentional than that. But he turned up in Philadelphia from Ireland in order to start doing his work of ministering to some of the frontier churches um, in the, the Old West, as it were, in the United States. And I, I think I've told you this story before about how he entered into these little towns and there was sort of like a hundred odd people and maybe these towns and he would try and minister at the church of his particular branch of Christianity, but there wasn't any. In fact, there were no churches in any of these towns because there were such small pockets, all of the different branches of Christianity that there was no one branch big enough, no group big enough to actually start a church. So there was these people floating around, churchless, communityless, even though there were plenty of people in the town, because of all of the fragmentation and the fraction um, that had happened in the church. Because we, we know, uh, if we know our history, we know in the 1500s, Martin Luther, I've talked about this guy before too, where he, he sort of started this Protestant Reformation. And he was protesting against some, some pretty legitimate issues that were cropping up within the Catholic Church. And at that point, it was pretty much the Catholics, or if you lived in Turkey, the Eastern Orthodox Church. But that was it. That was, those were your choices. And so the Protestant Reformation sort of opened the idea that maybe we don't have to just sit and take whatever's given to us, but we can find out for ourselves. It gave people the, the sort of the power to look into Scripture or look into their own faith and challenge what had been taught. And so we went from having a small, like just the Catholic Church in Europe, basically, to uh, several other different groups as people sort of stood up for their faith and, and challenged what was being given to them. Well, we must have gotten a taste for it because after that point, things just started getting more and more fractured. So even within the different groups, those groups would split over issues and then another group would split over these issues to the point when Thomas Campbell was walking through these towns in, a, in the frontier lands of Ohio, which is where actually I'm going to be going, um, that he saw such a, a, a splintered group of Christians that he became somewhat disillusioned with the ideas of denominations and all of these groups that had sprung up. And as he started a movement at that point of trying to just get back to the simplicity of just focus on the Bible and be united with each other, which is a movement that um, gave birth to a series of churches. And this church was started with that ethos in mind. You see... Thomas Campbell himself was a product of the splintered faith. If you think about it, he was a Presbyterian. That's, that's fine. It's fairly normal. He had grown up in, in, the, in, in Ireland. Uh, the uh, Presbyterian Church was the Church of England, uh, sorry, the Church of Scotland at the time, but he had grown up in a group of Presbyterians. And so that's fine, except there was a dispute amongst the Presbyterians around whether you could hire lay leaders into your church or how they had to be trained or whatever like that. So it split into the seceder church. Instead of figuring out this issue, they said, we'll just turn into two different churches. So you've got the seceder church and the non-seceder churches. 
And that's okay, I guess that happened. But then another split happened when they, uh, a disagreement arose about the role that government officials would have in the church, which is interesting because in Ireland the government officials didn't really get involved because the official church in Ireland was the Anglican church. So this was a Scottish problem that was coming up. But because they disagreed and split in Scotland, all of the churches in Ireland also had to pick a side. And so... Um, Thomas Campbell found himself as an anti-Burger Seceder Presbyterian. Well, they weren't done because there was another issue that came up, and honestly, I can't even for the life of me remember what it was, but the point is Thomas Campbell ended up as an old light anti-Burger Seceder Presbyterian type of Christian. That's what he was. Because here's the stupid thing about all of this. None of those issues were even biblical. None of them were about things that were written in the Bible that God had said, this is the way you ought to live. They were all just opinions that had come up or issues that had arisen in the life of the church and how we're supposed to go about it. Were they important issues? Well, probably to them, yes. But were they biblically based? No. They were matters of opinion and it caused ripples and splinters within the church. And that's not even the worst part. The worst part is not only were they all fractured along the lines of opinions and matters like that weren't biblical, but each and every one of those little splintered groups, like the old light anti-Burger Seceder Presbyterians, believed that they were the only church. And everyone else like the new light anti-Burger Seceder Presbyterians, they were heretics and were going to burn in hell. Like this was how they, what they believed. And so when they read the passage where Jesus says, you know, I'm going away to my father's house and I've got many rooms, and they're like, yeah, probably, because there's not going to be many of us up there. So you don't need a big house, Jesus. It's all good. They read in, the, in Revelation 144,000. They're like, yeah, that sounds about right you know, for all throughout history, because they were so fractured, the church was so small. And it just it was a joke. It was an absolute joke. And the world must have looked at that and gone, we're supposed to join this? We're supposed to believe in this? This is ridiculous. And I wonder if this is why God directed Paul 2,000 years ago to write Romans chapter 14 in the first part of 15. Because here's how he begins, right here. I wish this was written in, in, in stone back then somewhere. He says, Except the one whose faith is weak, not meaning that their trust in Jesus is weak, but their knowledge of things may be weaker than yours, without quarreling over disputable matters, or a better translation perhaps, over opinions. And this is kind of important, especially when we talk about disputable matters, because in Paul's mind, when he is writing, there were two basic types of disagreement within the church. You had ones where God had something specific to say about it. And a good example of this is in the book of Galatians, where the people in the church in Galatia were confused about, because some people were saying, you become a Christian, but you also still have to follow the laws of Moses. 
um, the Old Testament law. You still had to do that in order to become right with God. And Paul, he brings the hammer down on them. And he says, no, 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 no. This is against this. This is, this is exactly what Jesus came to free us from. We don't have to become right with God through the law. It was specifically what God had commanded. So he, he's like, like I'm going I'm to talk about this. So there were commands from God, and that was what he and other apostles were writing letters about to these churches so that he could, they could explain some of the things that God wanted them to directly know about certain issues and disagreements. Yeah? All right, but the other side of the coin, the other type was these opinions. And maybe God had sort of referenced or, or there were some ideas floating around within the church, but there was no direct command from God one way or the other. So there may be better options, like strong faith and weak faith. He talks about that. He had beliefs about these things. But the point is that it is not worth fighting over. So just let it go. It goes right back to this context in Romans 12.1. We've been talking about this. This whole section is built on Romans 12.1 where he says, we, um, by the mercies of God, because we have been rescued, we present our bodies as sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Remember, we talked about that. And he says part of that, a big part of offering our service to God is loving each other, and it is serving each other. So in that context, when it comes to disagreements, especially matters of opinion, he says we need to just make like frozen and let it go. Just let it go. It does not need to become an issue. So, interaction time. How are you guys with this? How do you, how do, you do with this? Are you the type to just not sweat the small stuff? Or are you one to sort of die on every hill? You know, you've got you to make sure you win every argument. Who, who's, who's kind of ready to sort of throw themselves under the bus and let me know something or an example of the most ridiculous thing that you just fought for. Anyone? Anyone? I'm glad my wife is not here because she would have stories about me. <laughs> That's fine. You don't have to. You can just keep them all in your mind. Nate, you got one? Yep, so Nate's really good at this. I'm so glad you shared that with us. Thank you. We feel real much better. So you did a lot of Bible studies in high school, out on the playground. Oh, in the first church, right, yep. So you were a stickler. At least some point. You're not always the mellow, chilled, relaxed man that we see before us. Was it before you had your beard? Was it the beard that helped you chill? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> You're old age. Yeah, right. So anyway, I, am, I try to be good at this. I try to not be too argumentative. But I think anyone who knows me knows that I struggle to kind of just keep it all in, right? I tend to well, make more of small opinion-based issues, then I probably should. I probably should. So anyway, that's, that's kind of my style. And I think because of the history, the way that it has played out, the way that churches have been, the way that people like me are, 
I think God was like, you know what, we need to make sure we really double down on this topic. And we've said that in, in Romans 12 to 14, he's been giving us like scattershot sort of ideas, you know, it's like, make sure you do this, make sure you do that, and moves on. Well, this one we get an entire chapter on because this is a very critical issue. This is very, very important. And so he moves on in verse 2 um, with an example from his day. And in verse 2 he says, One person's faith allows them to eat anything. But another whose faith is weak, and again, this is not a trusting in God weakness. This is just an understanding of, of how God operates sort of weakness. It's, it's kind of a, it was fine in his day to say that. To our day, we kind of sounds a little bit insulting. But basically he's saying, another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. So in Paul's day, uh, especially in the Roman sort of uh, areas, the non-Jewish areas of the world, one of the things that was very popular was that if you bought meat from the market, it was most likely have been um, sacrificed to one of the Roman gods. That was just the practice that they did. They sacrificed to the god, made it taste better or something, and then they sell it in the market and off you go. And it was just a way of the way that their religion worked. So Jesus had in his teachings said that it's not what goes into your body that makes you unclean, but what comes out, right? And, and in that way, he basically said, you know, there's, anything is fine to eat. He gave the all clear on whatever food we wanted to eat. It's just food, right? It's just food in his mind. However, there would have been some people, and there were some people in that culture who could not get around the fact that this meat had been sacrificed to a false god. Maybe they had come out of that pagan faith system, and so they they just like, no, I, I just can't eat that. It, it's just it's wrong to me. It just doesn't sound right. If I eat this, I'm promoting idolatry. I'm promoting the worship to these false gods. Now, obviously, Paul had no issue with eating anything, but that's not the point. The point is how those two groups treated each other. And he looks, this is what I really like about this passage too, is he doesn't just pick on one or the other. He says both sides, both sides of the issue. One side, do not treat with contempt the people who think differently on this issue. And the other side, don't judge the people who think differently either. And why not? Because God is not judging them. Why would we judge them if God's not judging them? He's fine with it. He has accepted them. He's like, all right, this, I've said it's okay, but if you aren't comfortable doing it, I'm good. Follow what your convictions are. If God is good with having a different opinion than you, why are you not okay with having them having a different opinion with you? In verse 4, who are you to judge someone else's servant? It's to their own master that servants stand or fall. And they will stand because the Lord is able to make them stand. And he gives another example. One person considers one day more sacred than another. This was a common Jewish thing because the Jews had sacred days and festivals throughout the year. And then the people coming in from Roman culture didn't really know or care about those days. And so one day, we can, uh, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers all every day alike. Each of them, and this is key, each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. 
Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives ourselves alone, for ourselves. And none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and he returned to life so that he might be the Lord, the ruler, the king of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother and sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God, his judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Point? It doesn't matter if you disagree with someone about a matter of opinion because they don't answer to you. They don't answer to you. They answer to God. This is actually really important for me as a leader. Um, I believe that God has put me in this position as a teacher and as an elder, and I think there's an, an element of spiritual authority that comes with that. But it's again, at the end of the day, you do not answer to me. It is not to me that we will be judged according to your actions, your thoughts, your, your beliefs. It's not up to me. It's between you and God. My role is to help you and encourage you, but you stand or fall before him. And if they don't stand before us, why are we hammering people on matters of opinion? Why are we fighting? Why are we splitting churches on matters of opinion? Who do we think we are? So Paul is adamant that we need to not be judgmental about the ways that God, the ways that other people see the world. If the Bible does not give a command on something, then we just need to cool our jets. Yeah? If they are living in faith and trust in God, who are we to tear it down? In fact, not only should we not judge people, but Paul doubles down again and says, in fact, you should be actively trying to protect and maintain the faith of people like this. He says, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind to not put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I'm convinced, he says, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean of itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, even for that person, then for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Did you catch that? Do not, by your eating, by your opinions, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know to be good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. All right, so there's a really important point here, isn't there? 
And that is a person's conscience is important. God has given us conscience for a reason. So if someone is convinced that something is wrong, if they then go ahead and do that something, it's sin for them, even if the something isn't necessarily a problem. Does that make sense? It's about the conscience, what you believe is wrong. If you act in a way other than your conscience, you are rebelling against what you believe is right. And that's a rebellion against God. Violation of your beliefs. So let's look at a classic example. Um, alcohol is, is a great example of this. How many of you uh, grew up in a church where alcohol was sort of either condemned or like it is not okay at all for anyone to drink? Yep, there's a few people. <laughs> now, what does the Bible say about this? Does it command us to drink or not to drink? No, it, it tells us not to get drunk. Drunkenness is bad. Everything up to that point is a liberty. We can choose. However, there are people who believe that alcohol is inherently problematic. It's something that leads to and therefore is evil. I mean, you could replace alcohol with, with gambling, with smoking, with a lot of different things. And we have various levels of emotional response to these things. Now, some people may think, well, that's a little bit of an overreaction. It's one thing to say, no, I choose not to drink because I don't want to get myself into trouble and I'm putting my own personal boundaries in place. But for people to say, no, no one should be doing it, well, then maybe that's a little bit of an overreaction. However, that's not the point, is it? The point is, what am I going to do when I'm interacting with people who believe that way? If I go out to dinner with someone, do I claim my liberty as a Christian and say, look, you don't have to drink if you don't want to, but I want to have a beer with dinner, so I'm going to. I mean, that's fair, right? They make their choice, I make mine. But Paul's saying, no. Think about what that drink or whatever it is, is doing to the other person. If they believe not only it's their choice, but it is fundamentally problematic for people to drink, and they're watching you do so, what is that doing to their faith? Are you building them up or are you causing confusion? Are you causing, Paul uses the word distress. What if they decide they want to now because you are, I guess if you're doing it, then it might be fine for me, but they're not convinced in their soul that it's fine. They're just following your lead. And so they're led into sin by something that is not sin for you, but is for them. Also that you could have a beer with dinner. How good was that beer? They're rebelling against what they believe is correct and right because you are holding your rights. And Paul is saying, no, this is not how we do things. If I'm going to love and serve this person as part of my worship of God and my action of love, then perhaps it's better for me just to not have one so that their faith is, is maintained. Even though I'm not, I don't have a problem with it, but I'm just going to abstain. And even more than that, maybe, depending on the situation, maybe I just give it up completely. Not just the dinner, but always. So that I can help maintain the faith of someone, at least until a point where maybe their convictions change and they start to understand things differently. I'm going to do what I can to protect the one who thinks differently than I do, but is loved and was sacrificed for by Jesus. That's my act of love. Why would I do that, though? Why would I give up something that I love because of their misunderstanding, because of their skewed idea? Why indeed? Because we love them. 
Because God gave up something he loved for our misunderstanding. All right, I recognize I'm going a little bit longer, but there's one more thing that comes up in this passage. We recognize there are opinions. We recognize there are commands from God. And and so Paul's like, look, if it's an opinion, just don't stress it. Don't fight about it. Have a nice conversation, but don't fight about this. Just let it go. But there's another category that has opened up. See, these are two categories for Paul, but there was another category that's formed over the last 2,000 years or so, and it's a little bit more difficult to navigate. Basically, what do we do when the Bible does say something about something, but we don't agree on what it means? This is a big one, isn't it? This is one that really caused a lot of fractioning in the church. Now, it'll be very easy to just say, look, this is a disputable matter, just like Paul said. We're just going to take it, we're going to throw it into the category of disputable matters because, well, they are disputed. If it's disputed, it's a disputable matter, right? And this is the unfortunate translation of the word disputable matters. I think opinions is better because in Paul's mind, and I want to be honest to what Paul was trying to say, he had in his mind there are commands from God and there are non-commands from God. And these are opinions. But this is tricky because there are commands from God. We just don't agree on what those commands are. So how do we navigate it? It's in between the two. We saw some of this um, in the Roman series even before. We talked about predestination and whether God chooses or we choose. And there are disagreements across the Christian spectrum. But there are things that God says about this. There is a right answer and a wrong answer because God has said it and he has an idea. We just, after 2,000 years of distance and cultural difference and, and, and geographical difference, we just don't really quite understand and we disagree over what that truth is. So we can't just directly apply this passage into that scenario, but I do think there are a few points that we can make that will help us take the heart of what Paul is trying to say, the heart of loving each other, caring for each other, and apply it to this particular situation, all right? So there's just a few here. A few things that we should know when we are about to engage in a conversation or a disagreement with someone about something that Scripture has said, okay? The first one is knowing the line between Scripture and opinion, This one's hard for us because we often aren't aware of the personal baggage or the personal history or anything that we're bringing into a conversation. It's difficult because, in truth, Scripture is what it says. All interpretation of it is a matter of opinion. Now, that doesn't mean all opinions are equal. All right? There is the opinion of Bob who's never read the Bible before, and he says, no, God should be like this. I reckon he means this. And then there's the opinion of someone who's been studying the Bible and lives the Bible every day and has a different opinion. Those two opinions are not equal. So we need to understand and respect that the the, the opinions that are coming from people, the interpretations, the ideas, where it is coming from, what has come behind it, what sort of learning and study has gone into it. I feel like I have a, a fairly decent sort of understanding of a lot of Scripture. That's my background. I've done some study on that, all of that sort of thing. However, a Bible college professor has done way more than I have. 
And they live this even more than I do. And they're in Scripture and they're pulling it apart and they're doing amazing stuff like that, right? So my opinion and their opinion are not equal. Now, I may still have a different understanding and conviction about certain passages than they do, but I have to respect, I have to respect and honor the fact that they've put more into it. Does that make sense? So when we come into these conversations and we understand that, look, this is my understanding of it, that's what it is. It's my opinion on this. Now, maybe based on, on education or maybe based on, on, on us understanding and conviction and the Spirit's moving in us, but we cannot claim it as Scripture. Does that make sense? It may seem controversial. If you want to unpack that with me a little bit more later, that's absolutely fine. But the first one, so knowing the difference between what Scripture says and our interpretation of it. The second one is knowing the stakes. When we are having a conversation with people, we need to know what is at stake here. I love Katie's question a couple of weeks ago. Do you remember what you asked when we were talking about predestination? Yeah. You basically asked, what difference does it make? And that's a really good question. And we should constantly ask that question, especially when we're getting into a conversation that's sort of creeping into a debate that's kind of creeping into conflict. And we say, what is the point here? What are we actually fighting over? What is the consequence of being wrong about this. Now, it may be quite big. This is why it's not just an opinions thing, because there are some things that Scripture says that people disagree with that actually are quite fundamental to what it means to be a Christian, and we need to make sure we get it right. The way we kind of approach it in our church is we have things over here that are kind of closed hand. And this is this idea that, that we hold tightly to these beliefs no matter what because they're fundamental to who we are as Christians, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's the only way to God, that uh, the Scriptures are his words to us, that God is who he says he is, things like that, all right? These are things that are going over here, and people do argue these about Scripture, and, and so we need to apply some of this stuff, but the stakes are pretty high, so it's important to get it right. But then we kind of flow over here into more open-hand kind of ideas where we may disagree, but we're all going to be in heaven as well anyway. So we can, you know, sit around the table in heaven, have a drink and chat about it, and we can laugh about how we disagree. Okay, but it's not going to affect whether we are Christians or not. A lot of stuff sits in this category over here. So when we start getting into a conversation about someone, and we start opening up the Bible, and we start looking into it, we've got to ask ourselves, is this a closed hand or an open hand thing? Because that helps us to know when to just stop. When we're disagreeing and we're not getting anywhere, do we keep trying because we want to see these people succeed in their faith? Or do we just, all right, okay, that's fine. Agree to disagree. We love each other. Still a brother and sister in Christ. Let's move forward and worship together. Does that make sense? And so the third one is knowing the goal. This is really, really important. This really cuts to the heart of what's going on. And it's this question. Am I arguing to help someone or am I arguing to be right? This is a big one for me. <laughs> This is the confession time. I, I, um, I struggle with this. The Bible is full of encouragements for us to help each other, to correct, and even to challenge each other. And I think that's really important. We sharpen, sorry, iron sharpens iron. We help each other to grow closer to God. That's our, our mission statement as a church. But do I really care about whether they are growing closer to God, or am I basically trying to just be 
right because it feels good to win an argument. I will confess I have been the latter more than I should have, and I'm working on that. But remember verse 4? Who are you to judge someone else's servant because to their own master servants stand or fall? They don't answer to us, they answer to God. So, am I trying to get them to come under my understanding of something, or am I trying to help them stand before God with confidence and accuracy? Because that can be a beautiful thing. I want to finish by reading the first part of Romans chapter 15, because I think this really sums things up beautifully. Who, we who are strong, again, we who maybe have a better understanding of what God is talking about, ought to bear with the failings of the weak. He's not pulling his punches here. And not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Amen? Lord, we, uh, well, we're not very good at this. Historically, you've looked at a lot of splintering and, and fractioning within the church based on some really stupid stuff. None of it is commands that you have made, and none of it, well, most of it, is not stuff that determines whether we are Christians or not, and yet that is what we claimed. So we ask your forgiveness for the way that we have acted. We... Um, We ask forgiveness for the way that we act in our own lives towards other people. And we ask that you would help us to see the people you have made, that you love, that you died for. And whether we agree with them on anything or not, that we love them. And so if we have opinion differences with them, and and, and it can't be just a casual conversation, Lord, help us to let it go. But if it's something that means the difference between them standing before you and not, may we help them, encourage them, challenge them even to see you for who you are, but to do so in a way that is respectful and loving and caring. May that be the picture of our church. May we no longer be the picture of the church that Thomas Campbell saw, fractured and splintered, but that we may be one, praising you with one voice and one mind. That's our prayer. That's your prayer. That's what Jesus prayed. May you help us do that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.